Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 21A, an interview on the incredible transformation of Chester Arthur with Scott Greenberger. I'm excited to welcome Scott Greenberger to the show today. Scott is the executive editor of Stateline, the daily news service of the Pew Charitable Trusts, and author of The Unexpected President, The Life and Times of Chester A. Arthur, and what a life it was. Quick recap, this is a guy who goes from civil rights attorney to corrupt party politician to disloyal vice president to the president who actually made civil service reform happen. It is a wild ride, and these are all things we'll talk about today. Scott, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So the first question I want to ask is, what inspired your interest in President Chester A. Arthur? Well, as it happens, I get that question a lot, Kenny. He's, he's uh, sort of an obscure president, um, but I wanted to do something different, wanted to delve into a, you know, a life story that really hadn't been told. Um, as my brother joked to me, he said, well, you know, any fool can write about Lincoln. So I took on the, the, the more difficult task of writing about Chester Arthur. But seriously, I think that, um, you know, as you said, it's a, just a fascinating story that's been lost to history. Most people just aren't aware of, of, um, of his story or, or even of Chester Arthur. In fact, on, on, uh, there's a, uh, a regular poll of college students where they try to determine who the most obscure president is. And Chester Arthur has unfortunately won that, won that poll. People who have heard anything about him typically just know about the, the sideburns. And then I, um, there was a mention in Die Hard, I believe, of a Chester Arthur Elementary School, which is the other reference I hear about. But other than that, um, you don't hear much about him. And yet, he, he, his story, uh, in addition to being a fascinating story, it takes place at this critical moment in American history during the Gilded Age, which is really, um, you know, it's really when we see the beginnings of, the, of a recognizable modern America. You see the first big corporations and the railroads and, um, you know, the, the, in, in school, of course, we learn a lot about the Civil War, which makes sense. Um, and then uh, typically there's a little bit about Reconstruction, and then you sort of fast forward to Teddy Roosevelt and um, the progressives. And uh, I think a lot of a lot of kids miss or get this this period of American history gets short shrift, and it really shouldn't. It's a really fascinating um, period of time, and there are a lot of parallels to our own time. There were a lot of concerns about uh, wealth inequality and these huge fortunes that. Um, you know, these, these titans of industry, the Rockefellers and whatnot were, were amassing. So um, a lot of interesting parallels and a really fascinating time. But mostly, I think it's just a, it's just a great story that's been forgotten. It's just, a ter- it's just a terrific tale. I feel like the first half of Arthur's life is almost like a 19th century political version of Breaking Bad. You know, this is a guy who goes from fighting for African-American rights in the courtroom to someone who's just blatantly corrupt, why does he break bad like that? Well, I think there are a few reasons. Um, the first one, I, I think he was in, in, uh, in a sense, rejecting the, his upbringing and his father uh, in particular. His father was a very rigid um, uh, abolitionist preacher. And, um, and uh, you know, they lived a very Spartan lifestyle. And, and he actually, because of his his abolitionism, which at the time, even in the North, wasn't so popular, but this is in the decades before the Civil War, uh, he was so outspoken that they ended up moving. He got he he lost job after job. They ended up moving from congregation to congregation in Vermont and upstate New York. Um, so I think that's part of it. He sort of when he when he graduated from college and he decided to go to New York City to to seek his fortune, and, and you know that's a path that 
you know, many people even now go to New York City to kind of, you know, fulfill their ambitions and make him the big time. So that was part of it. it was kind of rejection of his upbringing and his father. Um, but also, as you say, you know, he started out even in New York as, uh, you know, an admirable figure. He, he was uh, the lead lawyer in this case that ended up uh, really desegregating New York City streetcars. Um, and once the Civil War began, he was, uh, he became a quartermaster for the Union Army in New York uh, through some connections, political connections he had made. And uh, he did a great job. And actually, there were a lot of people, um, contractors for the Army, people, other quartermasters, who used their positions to enrich themselves. And Chester Arthur didn't. He, he really served um, with honor. Uh, it was really after he left his position as quartermaster that he, he took this dark turn. And, um, you know, I think he, for one thing, he had just been, just gotten married. Uh, he wanted to make money. Um, his, uh, his young wife had these uh, social aspirations and in order to uh, fulfill those aspirations in Gilded Age, New York, you needed, you needed money. You needed a nice house and servants and uh, the ability to pay for all the liquor and the food and, and all that stuff. Uh, and Chester Arthur, by the way, loved liquor and food. Um, so I think, you know, that's the, that's sort of in, in a nutshell for a lot, like a lot of people. I mean, it was, he was motivated by this desire to be wealthy and kind of rejecting his uh, modest and religious upbringing. Uh, one of his friends noted that uh, I mentioned that he was um, very interested in food and wine and and, and having a good time. One of his college friends noted that uh, during this period, Arthur uh, took, quote, great interest in matters of dress and was always neat and tasteful in his attire. He loved the pleasures of the table and had an extraordinary power of digestion and could carry a great deal of wine and liquor without any manifest effect other than the than greater vivacity of speech. Which I love that quote. I mean, he was a he was a fun guy. People like to, to spend time with Chester Arthur. And that ended up, as we'll talk about, um, I think a little later in the podcast that ended up kind of uh, in a way greasing his way to power. The fact that he was such a fun guy to be around. Uh, that is a fantastic quote. I really hope incredible powers of digestion is used to describe me someday. That's a new aspiration. <laughs> uh, you know, it, you, you hit it on the head in these post four years is when he really starts kind of getting off the path. He, he encounters and meets a few, and you might say unsavory characters, a few corrupt politicians, one of the most, probably the most interesting, the most impactful is Roscoe Conkling, a powerful New York uh, senator, a party boss, and leader of the Stalwarts faction. First off, can you tell me what is the Stalwarts faction? What do they believe in that makes them different from other Republicans? So members of the Stalwart faction, the Republican Party, um, uh, were, were adamant supporters of what was called the spoils system. Uh, they believed that... Um, victorious political candidates, that this was the way the system should work, that political, victorious political candidates would reward their supporters with, with jobs, patronage. And once uh, these supporters were in those jobs, it was their uh, responsibility, part of their responsibility of employment was to make voluntary contributions to the party. So it was a, a self-perpetuating cycle. And this is how these political machines uh, were built. The stalwarts were... Uh, unabashedly in support of this. There was also a, a reform wing of the Republican Party that felt like this was a terrible, uh, a terrible idea to have uh, people in government positions who really weren't qualified for them in many cases and were only there because of their political loyalties. And they became known as the half-breeds because uh, 
from the stalwart point of view, they were only sort of half half Republican. They weren't uh, true believers. Kind of the original rhino, huh? That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, what attracts Arthur to Conkling and what does Conkling see in Arthur when they're first meeting up? So they first uh, came together. Uh, one of the one of the people um, uh, once uh, Arthur uh, set out after he, he resigned his quartermaster position to, to make some money. One of the people he met, he used his contacts that he had made in procuring supplies and um, his job as quartermaster. He had built up a lot of knowledge and contacts about uh, supplying the Union Army, uniforms, um, uh, other supplies. And so um, one of the guys that he met when he became a lobbyist after he left uh, his position as quartermaster was a guy named Tom Murphy, who was a, an unscrupulous hatter. He was a guy who sold, uh, and he wasn't the only one, but um, he sold hats to the Union Army that uh, were um, uh, didn't hold up in the rain and, and uh, weren't very well made, let's just say. Interestingly enough, another... Um, uh, supplier to the Union Army who got in trouble for the same thing were the Brooks Brothers, who no their business survived. Yes, the Brooks Brothers got in trouble also for uh, selling uniforms to the Union Army that uh, tended to dissolve in the rain. Um, but uh, anyway, so Conkling and uh, Arthur met when this guy, Tom Murphy, um, was uh, in line to become collector of the New York Custom House, which was a very, very important job because of its patronage possibilities. It was the largest. Uh, um, single federal office uh, in the land in terms of the opportunity to hand out jobs. And it brought in a tremendous amount of revenue. This was an era before the income tax and the uh, customs duties um, collected on goods coming through the port of New York. Uh, all of that was handled by the New York Custom House. So they became, uh, they were both involved in the um, uh, the effort to, to, to get Tom Murphy appointed as collector of the Custom House, which he was. Um, and they became allies. Uh, they they had a lot um, to offer one another. Uh, Conkling, as you as you mentioned, was um, the political boss, uh, or should be the political boss, of the Republican machine in New York. And Arthur was a guy who had these ambitions. Um, uh, they also had a lot in common, on the surface, at least. Um, uh, coincidentally, they both uh, were born in 1829. They both had grown up in, in grown up in upstate New York. Um, with uh, formidable and strict fathers. Uh, they both were very careful dressers, but in that sense, their personalities couldn't have been more different though. Chester Arthur, as I mentioned, was a guy, was the kind of guy everyone liked to have around. He told stories, he stayed up late, he would drink and smoke till all hours of the night. Um, Conkling was a strange sort of politician, didn't really like people very much. Uh, he was an extraordinary character though. He. Uh, he had this very imperious uh, manner, he was a great speaker, and he was uh, very tall and sort of dramatic looking, very good looking, had this beard, but his, his um, the physical feature that people most noticed was this curl that he had, uh, that he liked to place right in the middle of his forehead. Um, and he, he, he actually uh, did very well with the ladies. And uh, whenever he spoke on the, in the Senate, uh, the ladies' gallery was always filled with his admirers, and his wife uh, was back in Utica, where he was from, and never came to Washington. And so he was um, 
uh, free to uh, indulge in in Washington, and he did. So Conkling, because he wasn't a very personable politician, he needed somebody like Arthur to sort of, um, ah. you know, who, who was kind of the social lubricant, um, you know, who knew how to schmooze, who would stay up late and, um, you know, with other politicians and, and cut deals. And so, uh, so Arthur uh, was the perfect lieutenant for Roscoe Conkling during this period. Now, you've started to talk a bit about Conkling's character, and I have had just the most delightful time trying to describe Conkling over the past few episodes in this podcast. What is your favorite Conkling story that sums up what kind of guy he is? Well, there's so many Conkling stories. I've, I actually was tempted to just write a book about Conkling, actually. <laughs> yes, uh, I mean, there's so many things. He was a great poker player. He always carried a pistol. Uh, he wrote his personal letters in um, purple ink for some reason and had the handwriting like a schoolgirl. Um, uh, as I said, the ladies gallery was already always packed uh, when he was there and he had a very, um, uh, it was not a very well kept secret, but a, an affair with a woman named Kate Chase Sprague, uh, who if you've read actually Team of Rivals, uh, mm -hmm. Doris Kearns Goodwin's book about Lincoln's cabinet, uh, she was the uh, daughter of one of the cabinet members and was known as sort of the belle of Washington, very beautiful, very smart, very sophisticated. Um, so she and Conkling had this affair. Um, the one story that I think comes to mind that I really love is that uh, at one time, um, the editor of one of the weekly papers in Washington was getting ready to publish a story about one of Conkling's affairs, either with Kate uh, um, Chase Sprague or somebody else. And um, so uh, uh, Conkling heard about it and he confronted the editor, went to the uh, newspaper, confronted the editor and demanded to see the, the proofs, you know, before the paper was, mm -hmm. was printed. Um, so Conkling reads the uh, story, which exposes one of his affairs. And he says to the editor calmly, um, do you intend to print this article? And the editor says, I do. And so Conkling just says, then I will kill you. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, the editor's assistant later said that, <laughs> that it was clear that the editor uh, believed that Conkling was deadly serious and they never published the article. Oh. Um, he just, uh, he's just a great character. I mean, he was, a, he's, he was, as I mentioned, six foot three, had this Van Dyke beard. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. He's, he's a, he's a great one. I've, I've often described him as like, it's almost like a DC villain was put, you know, in Washington, DC in the 19th century. He's just so nuts. I'm going to miss when he leaves the narrative because he's just been so fun to talk about. Yeah, he's great. He's a lot of fun. Um, so what is Arthur's role in Conkling's machine during the years they're affiliated? You know, there, there's a couple of years he's going to be in charge of that New York Customs House. There's six months he's vice president. But what's he doing the rest of the time? Well, so actually, so as I, as I um, noted, when, uh, when Murphy was a collector of the custom house, you know, Arthur was still Conkling's lieutenant. He, lieutenant. he didn't have the ability to hand out patronage jobs yet, but he was uh, valuable in that he was the social guy, the friendly guy, the, the backslapping guy. Um, when Tom Murphy uh, was drummed out of the collector's office for corruption, not surprisingly, um, Conkling uh, engineered it so that uh, Arthur succeeded him. And Arthur actually was collector of the Custom House for a, for a while, 1871 to 1878, when, um, when Rutherford B. Hayes, who was a reform-minded 
president to boot him out. So, so for that period of time, he was incredibly important uh, to Conkling and to the machine. He had control of something like a thousand jobs or more than that. Um, and those voluntary contributions that I talked about. He continued to entertain. He, as, as collector of the custom house, he made a very healthy salary, but also the way uh, uh, the, well, the system worked was that he was entitled to take a cut of all of the penalties they levied on um, people who had uh, broken the customs rules. And so the money was flowing in. He had a beautiful house. He entertained a lot. Uh, he was able to uh, control uh, jobs and campaign contributions. Um, and, uh, you know, again, uh, Conkling was a guy who succeeded despite his personality <laughs> as boss. And he was very happy to leave sort of the day-to-day -day management of the machine mm -hmm. to Chester Arthur, who was very well suited for that role. And, you know, everyone loved Chet, frankly, even the, the you know, the business people that he was responsible for regulating ostensibly the custom house liked him. He just was that kind of a guy. Um, and so he was uh, very valuable. But as I said, in 1878, when Rutherford B. Hayes came into office, a uh, reform-minded Republican uh, who had pledged to only serve one term, he, after a long struggle, managed to uh, boot Arthur out of the collector's uh, office. And it seemed like that uh, as far as, you know, holding public office, that Arthur's political career was over. He had really been... Um, uh, disgraced, left in disgrace. And so it seemed like that was it for Chester Arthur, but it was not it for Chester Arthur. Um, he had a very surprising uh, comeback. He did. He, he uh, in a very surprising fashion, he's made vice president. Uh, and, and shortly after that, this, this crazy transformation happens, you know? So, you know, as the 1870s are turned to 1880s, Arthur is looking pretty dang corrupt. And then a few things seem to happen in like a 20 month span that turns him into a reformer. Yeah. His wife dies. President Garfield gets assassinated, turning Garfield from, uh, I'm sorry, Arthur from vice president to president. And before he's even sworn in, he starts to get a series of letters from a woman named Julia Sand, who expresses belief in his ability to change at a time when everyone else has written him off. Would you mind walking me through these three things and what impact they seem to have on Arthur, starting with of the death of his wife? So, yeah, so he, so the Republicans, as I said, he was still, even after being removed from the custom house, he was still uh, close to Conkling and an important um, cog in the political machine. And, and after the Republicans uh, did well um, in the 1879 um, New York state elections, Arthur was actually uh, up in Albany helping helping to organize <laughs> the uh, legislature in a way that would uh, favor the machine. And it was there that he got word that his uh, wife was, was ill with pneumonia. Um, so he rushed back to New York City, actually had to take a milk train, uh, which stopped at all the uh, dairies uh, on the way downstate, which must have been excruciating for him. And uh, by the time he got there uh, to his brownstone on, on Lexington Avenue, um, it was late at night and his wife was asleep. And uh, so for 24 hours, he sat by her bedside, stroking her hair. She was sedated under morphine. And, you know, I think he felt, um, I know he did actually, because he said this later, but he felt guilty about all the, all the, all the late nights he had spent uh, hanging out with other politicians and, 
and visiting what uh, some some people called very questionable resorts. I think that it's fair to assume that, you know, when he was entertaining his political friends, he went out to brothels and and uh, 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 you know all these bars and uh, in New York City. And and when he was doing that, she was left at home. And here he was as she fell ill again up in Albany, doing Conklings and the machines political business. And he wasn't there when she got ill. So she dies. And um, according to his uh, friend, she was only 42 years old. She died uh, in January of 1880. Um, he was, uh, one of them said he was, quote, completely unnerved and prostrated by her death. I think he, uh, you know, he, he tried to find uh, comfort back in Manhattan with his old friend, Tom Murphy, the unscrupulous hatter. But uh, instead of going out to a saloon or a beer garden, um, Murphy later reported that Arthur just asked him to walk, walk back and forth on 29th Street uh, between 3rd and 5th Avenues until 2 a.m., just sort of expressing his sorrow. So I think the first thing um, uh, that happens in this transformation is that his wife's death is a real shock to him and makes him maybe starts making him reconsider the sort of life he's been leading, um, which wasn't exactly the life of a family man. Yeah. And the second thing that happened and is, is uh, and I, let me backtrack for a second and, and yeah. describe how Arthur even became vice president, which was after uh, Nell's death. So in 1880 at the Republican convention, uh, Conkling and the stalwarts wanted to restore uh, um, President Grant um, to office after Hayes. Grant's second term had really been riddled with corruption and um, the stalwarts, uh, wanted Grant back in the White House for what have been, would have been at that point an unprecedented third term. And uh, what happened was the, uh, the convention was of 1880 was deadlocked and it, it went ballot after ballot after ballot. Finally, a dark horse candidate emerged as a compromise candidate and that was James Garfield, a congressman from Ohio who seemed to be at least acceptable to both, both sides of the Republican um, party. And uh, Arthur and Conkling had been very strong advocates of Grant. And so when Grant lost, the Republican Party leadership knew that they needed um, to do something to assuage Conkling because he was very upset. And New York was this critical state. It was the most populous state in the Union at that point. And they needed New York in order to win the election. So in order to throw a bone to Conkling, they decided to give the vice president's slot to one of his flunkies. And the flunky they chose was Chester Arthur. <laughs> um, now, ironically, Conkling was very upset. He was so enraged by what had happened and, and the denial of Grant, uh, the fact that Grant had been denied the nomination, that he urged Arthur not to take the vice president's job. But Arthur, uh, for the first time, but not the last time, stood up to Conkling and said, you know what, this is the greatest honor I've ever gotten. I never would have imagined <laughs> that I would be vice president of the United States. So I'm going to take this nomination. So he did. Um, so what happened was, though, uh, just several months into Garfield, Garfield won the election, and um, uh, and Arthur actually played a large role in the election. Used his political talents to help the ticket. Uh, but in um, in uh, just a few months in July, 1881, after Garfield took office and back then presidents took office in March. So he, he had only been in office for a few months. Uh, someone uh, snuck up behind Garfield at a railroad, a railroad station in um, Washington and shot him uh, in the back. 
And uh, the worst part from Arthur's point of view was that this assassin, Charles Guiteau said um, uh, that he had done it so that uh, Arthur would be president, that he was a, uh, he was upset, he was insane, but he was upset because he thought that his work on the campaign entitled him to a job as uh, ambassador to Austria or France, which was ridiculous. And when he didn't get that job, uh, either of those jobs, he decided that he needed to uh, take Garfield out of the picture. Arthur would be president. The spoilsman uh, wing of the party would be in charge and that perhaps he would, you know, get some satisfaction. Uh, but from Arthur's perspective, I mean, not only was it awful that uh, the president of the United States had been shot, though not, not he didn't die yet. Garfield was still alive. Right. <laughs> but people were uh, saying that Arthur and Conkling might have had something to do with the plot. Since, since after all, Guteau had said uh, right after he shot Garfield, now Arthur will be president. Um, so it's, it, you know, Arthur, imagine the situation he's in. So Garfield is uh, in the White House on what would end up being his deathbed in terrible agony. And the whole country is following uh, his progress. It looked like sometimes he would, for several weeks, he'd be recovering, then he'd get worse again, recover, get worse again. Um, and meanwhile, Arthur is terrified. First of all, people are newspapers and not just people in the street are accusing him of being involved in a plot. Uh, newspapers are saying, uh, the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, that nobody could be less qualified for the presidency than this political hack, Chester Arthur. Um, and because uh, the assassin or would-be assassin was a disappointed office seeker and had expressed support for the spoil system, it, it, it made Conkling and Arthur look even worse because they were the representatives of that system. So, so I think that that's the second big thing after, his, uh, after Nell's death, his wife's death, that really, uh, really shakes Chester Arthur. I mean, here he is, the, the, his country... Many of his countrymen think he had something to do with the assassination. He's afraid to appear in public because he thinks he might be assassinated. Um, so he's he's starting to think, I think, some more about uh, the path that he has been on, and uh, and also the possibility of assuming uh, the responsibilities uh, of being president of the United States. So then, a very interesting thing happens at the end of August uh, 1881, and Garfield is is still on his uh, deathbed, his condition is starting to deteriorate now, though, pretty, pretty significantly. He gets a letter um, from this woman named Julia Sand, who's a young woman in her early 30s um, from New York City. Arthur didn't know her, um, had never met her before. Uh, she was unmarried. She was the eighth daughter of, a, of an immigrant, a German immigrant uh, named Christian Sand, who had, who had uh, rose from his humble beginnings to be president of the um, Metropolitan Gaslight Company. And since 1880, she'd been living with her brother, who was a banker, Theodore Sand, um, at, on East 74th Street in Manhattan. And she was, it's unclear exactly what her physical maladies were, but she was, there was some sort of something that kept her housebound, at least some of the time, you know, some sort of Victorian uh, <laughs> malady. Um, excuse me. So she had, uh, you know, she had spinal pain, some other ailments. Anyway, she, this was a time I mean, women 
couldn't vote, let alone hold political office. This was a time when women couldn't be involved in politics, but she had an intense interest in politics, read all the newspapers, and apparently uh, she had a keen interest in Chester Arthur. She'd been following his career, uh, was as everyone else in the country was, you know, following um, uh, Garfield's um, deterioration. And so she decides to write this letter the first of what would be 23 letters to Chester Arthur. Um, and I, if, I, if I may, I want to quote from this first letter because it's, it's just really extraordinary. So she writes to this guy who's vice president of the United States, maybe soon to be president. She's never met him before. She says, the hours of Garfield's life are numbered. Before this meets your eye, you may be president. The people are bowed in grief, but do you realize it? Not so much because he is dying as because you are his successor. <laughs> Ouch. Bold. Yeah. <laughs> what president ever entered office under circumstances so sad? The day he was shot, the thought rose in a thousand minds that you might be the instigator of the foul act. Is not that a humiliation which cuts deeper than any bullet can pierce? Your best friend said Arthur must resign. He cannot accept office with such a suspicion resting upon him. And now your kindest opponents say Arthur will try to do right, adding gloomily, he won't succeed, though. Making a man president cannot change him. But Julia Sand, apparently, for whatever reason, uh, she, she uh, did not share that pessimistic view. She knew about Arthur's uh, history as a young man and what he had done mm -hmm. as, a, as a lawyer in New York City and as quartermaster mm -hmm. of the Union Army. So she says, she goes on, she says, but making a man president can change him. Great emergencies awaken generous traits which have lain dormant half a life. If there is a spark of true nobility in you, now is the occasion to let it shine. So uh, incredible letter. And then she gets more specific and she basically says that what you need to do is reform. It is not the proof of highest goodness never to have done wrong, but it is a proof of it sometime in one's career to pause and ponder, to recognize the evil, to turn resolutely against it and devote the remainder of one's life to that only which is pure and exalted. So she's basically urging him to step up, to, to disavow uh, the spoil system that's gotten him where he is and to be a better man, to return to the, the idealism of his, um, of his young adulthood. So it's, it's a very extraordinary uh, letter. And uh, these letters are still uh, at the Library of Congress, which is amazing. It's awesome. And so, so my big question with Julia Sand is why her? What made Arthur keep this woman's letters? What made him visit her in New York? How real was her influence over his seeming redemption? Well, I think it was real. I mentioned that the letters are at the Library of Congress. And the reason that's extraordinary is that shortly before Arthur died, he ordered almost all of his papers to be burned. He literally asked uh, a couple of his aides and his son to get some barrels, fill them with the papers and light it all on fire. And, um, he, but he explicitly asked them to save these letters from Julius Sand, um, which suggests that they were very important to him. He kept these letters in a special envelope from this strange woman he'd never met. Um, he also followed her advice. She gave very specific advice in many cases. Not now, not all the time. She was very upset with him for signing the uh, the Chinese uh, Exclusion Act, um, mm. although it was not, it was a uh, a less restrictive version than an earlier one he had vetoed. Um, but he followed a lot of her advice, 
And, um, and then as you note, he visited her in New York, and which is really amazing. He just pulled up one day unannounced in his carriage and, uh, and, and just paid her a visit to thank her for her faith in him uh, and for advising him, which is, which is really extraordinary when you think about it. The president of the United States would, would, just, uh, would just show up one day, which is, which is what happened. And she gives this wonderful description of it in one of the letters she wrote to him after he visited. So that's how I was able to get some of the details of the visit. As far as we know, he never wrote back to her. Um, at least those letters don't, don't exist anymore. But he did visit her. Um, and so uh, I think that, again, given the fact that he these letters were the only things that he wanted saved, uh, the fact that he followed a lot of her advice and the fact that he visited her suggests that he did um, he, he did really care about what she had to say and that it did have an impact on him. It's it's such an incredible story. Like, it sounds like something that Hollywood would make up, you know, and put like a 90s movie about the presidency or something. And the fact that it's well, I hope that happens, you know, it took yeah. a while for Lin-Manuel Miranda to get his hands on uh, the <laughs> Hamilton. So, you know, we'll see. Maybe he'll pick up on it. So I, I'd love we talk about three things, you know, his wife dying, Garfield's assassination, Julia Sands. How important do you think each of these three things was like if you had to kind of Dane, like a percent of influence on his his reformation, would you say it's equally or, or where, where would you say was the turning point? Was it was it additive? You know, was it all three things had to happen? I think it was probably additive. Right. So the first shock was was Nell's death. I mean, she and, and I think his guilt over that and the fact that he hadn't been around so much, um, you know, in fact, uh, there are stories that she, you know, he was absent so often she would go to the opera, which she loved with elderly friends like other people. She did, he just wasn't around. Um, I, I think, you know, look, certainly the, the fact that Gar, you know, Garfield being shot was a, was a shock and the, and the newspaper, um, the, the treatment that he got from the newspapers and what people wrote about him must have been jarring <laughs> to put it mildly. Actually, there's a, uh, an anecdote from a, and, and that, and I relied very heavily on the newspapers of the period, which were very, the writing was very vivid because, you know, of course they didn't have TV or radio. So they felt like they had to describe everything. And there were so many papers in a place like New York. It was great. Yeah, um, yeah. But so there's a, a reporter comes to the house after Garfield dies to basically get a comment from Arthur. And he hadn't even heard that it happened yet. And he came to the door um, and he, uh, he, he asked the, the uh, you know, the person, the butler, whoever who answered the door, you know, can I speak to the vice president? And the butler said, no, he's, uh, you know, he's alone in his room, basically weeping uh, on his desk. You know, I mean, he was clearly very emotionally affected by uh, the shooting and by Garfield's death. Um, but then, yeah, I think these letters these letters seem to touch something in him. I mean, they, for some reason, you know, even though Julia Sand did not know Chester Arthur, yeah. she knew what his history was. Mm -hmm. She, I think she sort of, he was vulnerable in the spot, in, in that, in that spot, given what had happened, the spot that she uh, aimed at, which was, Hey, you can be better than this. You know, this is a great responsibility that's been thrust upon you. Um, the whole country uh, no one in the country really believes you can do it, but I do, I believe in you. And, uh, you know, this is your time to step up, uh, and do something good for the country. So, so these three things happen, Arthur gets into the presidency and within a few months of assuming the presidency, he is actively calling for civil service reform and he actually gets it done. 
How big is that moment? Is this a moment that we can look at and say the country really changed that day? I think it's a it's a huge moment, really. Um, it, it was something, first of all, it's hard for us to imagine now, but it was really one of the pressing issues of the time. And people who were calling re- for reform in the civil service were saying, listen, American democracy cannot survive. You know, they were worried as we are now. And this is one of the parallels about the influence of money and politics and corruption. And, and you know, the, the country was growing very rapidly. And, um, and the presidents who came after Arthur, particularly, you know, from Teddy Roosevelt on, were interested in a, in a, in a larger federal government, the federal government taking a more active role in regulating, you know, food and drugs and all of these, all of these new problems that were cropping up as the country grew. We, they believed, and it soon became the consensus, that we needed a bigger federal government, a more active federal government to, to, uh, to help solve some of these problems. And it's hard to imagine that without civil service reform, if the federal government had still just been filled with political hacks, many of whom weren't qualified for their jobs, it's hard to imagine that, uh, that we would have been able to progress the way we did in terms of having the federal government play, pay a more active play a more active role in Americans' lives and to do more. And it, that really set the stage for all of these reforms that came later. Um, so I think it's a very important moment. And of course, um, you know, we've built on the civil service system since then. Uh, as recently as the 1970s, I think there was a major reform. But this was a very, you know, this was a crucial development. And, you know, it's not... Um, it's still something that that comes up, frankly. You know, uh, former President Trump talked about the deep state, and you know his yeah. his point of view was that everybody should be loyal to him. But no, the whole point of civil service reform is that yeah, there are some political appointees still who are serve at the pleasure of the president, but there are these thousands of other people who are professional civil servants, and their uh, their responsibilities to do their jobs and their responsibilities to the the Constitution and. Um, they don't serve at the pleasure of the president or any political party. Um, and that's crucial. That really is crucial. I mean, it's, it's a, it really laid the foundation for the government that we have today, I think. And, and, and it's just the height of irony that Chester Arthur, this machine politician who was known for, he was the ultimate, the ultimate spoilsman is the guy who got it done. It's just such an awesome story. And so to me, the million dollar question about Arthur's story, and this is the cynics question, the question the cynic will ask is, do you think Arthur actually legitimately changed when he became president? Can people change? Did Arthur change? Or is this all a ruse? Was it all an act? Was he simply like, well, I want my legacy to be better. So I'll just suck it up and pass this one bill. And, and I don't really care about it. What is it? What's the truth there? You know, I think, I think he did change. Um, you know, uh, shortly before he left office, President, uh, former President Obama said uh, he was warning about Trump. Of course, he said, "Listen, the presidency doesn't change a person." You know, he said, "Quote: Who you are, what you are, it doesn't change after you occupy the Oval Office. It magnifies who you are. It shines a spotlight on who you are." But Arthur, Arthur did change in office. He was a very different person as president than he was at least in, you know, in the 20 or so years before he became president. Um, so I think it is possible. And look, maybe you could argue that he, that the person he was as a, as a young man was always in there somewhere and he just sort of lost sight of it, you know, in this quest for, for wealth and power. But, um, I think he, I think he can change as Julius Sand, or he did change as Julius Sand 
said uh, people can change. Great emergencies, uh, you know, can awaken these dormant traits in people. And I think that's what happened in the case of Chester Arthur, that this, this dramatic turn of events, him, you know, ending up on the ticket and then all of a sudden he's in the White House. I mean, two, two years, two years or three years after he's booted out of the custom house, he's president of the United States. And I think he, you know, he decided, wow, I mean, this, it's, you know, this is a history making position I'm in now potentially, and it's time to, um, you know, change my ways. What is Arthur's most lasting legacy? I think it's definitely civil service reform, as we've been as we've been saying. I mean, that's the that's the biggest thing. The other big thing he did was he really started the process of of um, building a modern navy, which which also became yeah. increasingly important. You know, with Teddy Roosevelt sending the navy around the world and all that. And as the the United States started, that was the beginning of um, uh, the United States. You know, having a navy that would enable it to sort of play a global role in the in the 20th century the navy that we had when arthur took office was uh, i mean as the european countries were building these huge battleships and you know made of steel we still had largely a wooden navy most of the uh you know captains were um in a sense those were patronage jobs too they were (laughs) there was a lot of drinking i mean it wasn't it was more like uh you know kind of recreational boating than any kind of serious uh naval force but uh but arthur started to turn things around and that was i, I would say that's the other big legacy um that uh that he can claim the last question i have is what lessons in leadership do you think we can learn from chester arthur well i think again i think again it gets back to this issue of change that you know there a person's I think, look, a personal a, a person's personal narrative, their story is going to influence uh, how they act in a leadership role. And I think that all of these things that we've talked about, his wife's sudden death and, and the um, you know, Garfield being shot and these letters, all of these things uh, influenced him and changed him. Um, he, uh, you know, it's amazing when he left office, it, he's largely forgotten today when he left office, people were saying, wow, that guy was one of the best presidents we ever had. (laughs) Even though, you know, when he was getting ready to take office, people were terrified. Mark Twain of all people said it'd be hard to better the Arthur administration. I mean, here's a guy who really turned things around. He found his better self or kind of went back to kind of what he had been before. And, uh, it did make him an effective leader. People, people. Uh, by the time he left, people were saying, um, "Chester Arthur, you did it. You did a great job." I think he's largely forgotten, you know, in part because he burned all of his papers, which uh, you know we mentioned, which makes it difficult for historians to write about him. Um, and also, it's this period of history where people get a little, they're a little fuzzy on, you know, is it Garfield Hayes, Arthur, Arthur Garfield Hayes? It's a period we just don't spend a lot of time on that period of history. But as I say, I think it's. Uh, it's under-examined and it's actually a fascinating, fascinating period of time. I, I have to agree the Gilded Age, as I, as I began this podcast, was the era I knew the least about. And it has been the most fascinating to me as yeah, I've gotten great. into it. Yeah, very it, colorful it, characters too. It's a great, it's oh, a great period. Totally. They're, they're so rich. If you'd like to hear more from Scott, please give him a follow on Twitter at S. Greenberger and check out his book, The Unexpected President, The Life and Times of Chester A. Arthur. I read it for my research and it was a fantastic read. Thank you so much for your time, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun.
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It's always good to hear from y'all. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash histories. It helps me buy books and pay to host the show. And thank you, everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Olgar Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, we'll take a look at the life and presidency of Grover Cleveland, the first Democrat elected to the presidency since before the Civil War. That's right. The Democrats strike back next time on Abridged Presidential Histories. <laughs>